0: Well, praise the Lord. What a, what a great uh, blessing it is to hear the Word of God quoted like that from the children. And uh, as they take it to heart, pray that we would too. If you could think of just one verse that teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ was a servant, what would that verse be? That's a question. Go ahead and shout it out. One verse. Say again. What does it say? The Son of Man did not come to serve, but come to be served, but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many. Okay. Some, some believe that's the key verse of, of the Gospel of Mark, that the whole Gospel is really uh, designed to show the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant, as a servant's servant. And uh, that verse sums it up. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Others would perhaps point to the passage where the Lord Jesus Christ donned an apron and uh, washed the disciples' feet, again, showing uh, his service. Or you might consider Philippians 2, where we learn about the the great act of humility of the Lord Jesus Christ um, that brought him to this planet and to ultimately die on the cross for us. Jesus was a servant. So let's take a look real quick. Uh, Our passage actually is in Luke, but I want to make a detour for just a minute to Mark, chapter 1. And um, the Gospel of Mark portrays the Lord that way. And one of the key words in the Gospel of Mark is the word, immediately, immediately. And you read that over, in fact, 36 times in the New King James Version of the Bible. We see the Lord Jesus as a servant who is quick to do His Father's will. Whatever His Father has in store for Him that day, He does it immediately. gets it done. And the Lord taught His disciples to have the same attitude uh, as they serve Him. Um, and, he, and He taught us to pray that way, didn't He? He said that we should pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the same way that your will is uh, exercised in heaven, as the Lord speaks to the angels and says, do this, do that, go here, go there. It's immediate. And so he asks us to pray, to learn to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our lives, are we as quick to obey the Lord, as quick to serve the Lord as the Lord Jesus Christ himself was? Uh, now, before I forget, I know I will if I don't say it now. Um, we're going to o- offer this afternoon uh, an opportunity for those who want to obey the Lord in baptism. Good, uh, what do you call that? Segway, yeah. Um, and so we, uh, some of you have already shown or told us that you're interested in being baptized as a first step, really, of obedience to the Lord after salvation. And so in two weeks, Lord willing, November 11th, so 11 that's the easy way for me to remember it, um, we'll have a baptism here at the chapel, Lord willing, of those who would like to uh, follow the Lord in, in um, obedience in that. Um, so this afternoon, right after the meeting, probably about quarter to one, uh, those who are interested can stay behind and we'll talk with you. And uh, we'll actually serve lunch to you. We have uh, that great delicacy called uh, pepperoni pizza. And uh, we'll um, talk about baptism this afternoon with you if you'd like to stay and uh, join us for that. All right. The father said of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Pleased. Certainly it pleased the Father to see and know the moral excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, of His perfect Son. But it's pleasing to the Father to see the urgency with which Jesus did the Father's will. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 1. We're just going to look at a couple of key verses here. And uh, we see what happened in one day, or in maybe a 24-hour period here. Mark chapter 1 verse 20, we read that He chose His 12 disciples. Most of us, that would be a day in and of itself. But he did that on that day. Then they traveled to Capernaum, which was a a distance from where they were, verse 21. Verse 22, it says, where he taught in the synagogue one Saturday, and he was teaching as they had never heard before. Now, just to kind of give you a little background here, for many preachers, uh, just delivering the Sunday message is, is tiring enough. If you've ever preached... Um, you you maybe know that that a lot goes into it ahead of time and in preparation. You preach the message, you go home and have a nice lunch, and that bed looks awfully inviting after that. That's not what the Lord did, and He taught in the uh, synagogue one Saturday, and as He was uh, teaching as they had never heard before, um, He preached to the crowds, verse uh, twenty two and twenty three. He cast a demon a demon out of a man, or demons out of a man who was there at the meeting. Immediately after the service, he went to Peter's house, and they found that Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and he went and he healed her. And she got up and she served them. They had a meal together. And then we read in verse um, that was verses 30 and 31. The day wasn't over yet because it says in verses 32 to 34, After the sun set that night, the whole city gathered at Peter's house to be healed. And he healed all who were sick with various diseases and those who were demon possessed. Now, it doesn't say that he rested after that, Um, it's just silent. But it does say next that a great while before day, before the sun came up, he went out to a solitary place to pray. This is uh, the Lord Jesus who is a servant, and he's full of activity. Uh, doing immediately his father's will. When Peter and the others in verse, uh, verses 36 through 39 uh, found him, he immediately left saying, Let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Then he was met by a leper, verse 40, and Jesus had compassion on him and healed him too. And that day was filled with preaching and casting out demons and healing and ministering to the needs of all those around him. And that's just Mark chapter 1. He was a servant, a perfect servant. Now, Paul writes about his being a servant, about, about uh, Jesus being a servant, and he says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? A mind that says, you know what? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am God. I could stay in heaven or I could come to earth. I could humble myself and come to earth and subject myself to the very creatures that I made, even to crucifixion on a cross. And he says, I'm not going to cling to my place in heaven. Instead, I'm going to come and be a servant to them, to us. He was our servant, a servant to us. And as he served, he went all the way to the cross. And there, even death on the cross for us, And then Paul takes that event and he says, okay, here's the teaching that I want you to get from this. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Don't look for applause. Don't look for a pat on the back. Don't look for anything but humble service. Have this same mind as we found in the Lord Jesus Christ in you. Paul writes... "Um, about it in Philippians 2, he, Jesus came with no reputation, no will of his own, but a humble urgency to do nothing but the will of God. Let this mind be in you. Well, it brings us to our study this morning. The Lord Jesus is the perfect servant, and in our text today, he is teaching his disciples how to be servants, what it looks like uh, when someone Is a sermon. So let's take a look now at Luke chapter 17. We'll continue with our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17, and we'll begin reading with verse 7. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field? Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which which, uh, you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. That's our call of duty, being a servant. We are called to be servants, but some of us don't want to serve. Some of us look at service and go, "Ah, how do I get out of this? How do I avoid this? Well, the Bible illustrates our relationship with the Lord in, in many ways. In fact, I was listening today, this morning, for, um, you know, perhaps some of these ways would be brought up. But let's just go over a couple of them. In some places in the Scripture, we as believers are likened as sheep. We're called sheep. In other places we're spoken of, and this came out in the Lord's Supper this morning, sons, Uh, full-grown sons with all the rights and privileges that come our way because we are sons of God, children of God. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're all of those things. Still, the scriptures speak about us as being royalty. Did you know that? Kings and priests to our God. We are also called a body. Another illustration of the, of, uh, the church uh, a vine or branches. We're even called the temple. And somebody raised this uh, issue this morning that we are living stones. That the Lord is building, with which the Lord is building His temple. Um, just a minute ago, we talked about being soldiers. That's another term that is used uh, for believers. And each of these names uh, or, or ideas that represent believers uh, come with a, a different aspect of our relationship with the Lord. But here in this passage, we're called deacons. That's really the word that's used here. We're deacons, we're servants of the lord and we're called to hard work we're not only called to hard work but we're called to put others ahead of ourselves and then we're called to serve without thanks when i see a christian who is bored i just don't think they get it i don't think they get it i don't have anything to do are you kidding me there's so much to do Here's what the Lord left us with when He went uh, to heaven. Just before He ascended, He said, Go into all the world and make disciples. Have we done that yet? No. There's a lot of work to be done. We're not finished yet. This morning we saw on the map, I was just talking to Matt about this a minute ago, different countries that we've reached out to. And I said, wouldn't it be great if we could fill that whole map with uh, the whole globe, with uh, places that we've reached out to. I said, this year was all, all done in red. And I said, that's great. But I said, suppose we could have, you know, like a spinning globe like that and say, Calvary Chapel next year, we've, uh, we've actually been able to reach out to all these other countries. And then as the years progress, if the Lord uh, tarries, that we'll have actually been able to reach out to the whole world. That'll be wonderful. What a goal, Right. Bored? I don't think so. (laughs) There's so much to do. So much to do. We are saved to serve God and to serve others. And in that service, we may have to um, be like soldiers. We might have to forego certain things. We might have to skip supper from time to time, or breakfast, or sleep, or vacations, or any number of other things. As servants, we are also called, surprisingly in this passage, to thankless service. Now that may not sound very appealing to you, but so much of what is done in Christian service today is really done without notice, without fanfare, and so should it be. And it's done without thanks. In fact, it's often done with a whole lot of criticism, too. Should we expect to be thanked for what we have done when the Lord is... Rarely thanked for what he has done for us. I think not. We're supposed to do these things. As servants, we are to acknowledge that we are unprofitable servants because we've only done what was our duty to do. Duty. What does that word mean? It's interesting. It actually um, means they owe it. That's what it means. They owe it. We owe this to the Lord. Listen, if the Lord saved our souls... We owe him everything. Bill McDonald wrote a book one time called My Heart, My Life, My All. We sing that as a song. Uh, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my strength, my all. After a full day's work, this servant came in from the fields, came in from uh, plowing or came in from caring for the sheep. And uh, he didn't put his feet up on the sofa he was given more work to do okay now it's time to serve me the master said serve me my dinner and dinner had to be served and the lord asked does the master thank that servant for doing what he was commanded to do no why because it's his duty to do so how many of you are dog lovers here Ah, oh, saw hands go up right away i won't ask about cats because i don't like talking about cats dog lovers I remember some years ago, Bill McDonald shared with me um, something that he um, uh, had a theory about. He said, uh, this is what he said, I am persuaded that God put these four-legged creatures in the world to teach us valuable lessons. I have a theory, for instance, he said, that they are designed to teach us how to worship. Dogs are worshippers. And he told me a story. He said, the first came to my attention years ago when I was at a man, a friend of his named um, Mr. Loazzo. And Mr. Loazzo drove him to his home. And Bill was going to be a guest in his home that day. And as he got out of the car, he noticed two dogs in the front yard, one black and one brown. And the black dog rushed over to Mr. Lawazo, and its, ta- its tail was wagging furiously. He was jumping up excitedly, and he was slobbering all over uh, Mr. Loazzo's uh, outstretched hand. The brown dog just slunk off into the bushes somewhere, and uh, turning to Bill, his host said, that brown dog knows nothing about worship. I can't help think of a dog I once had when I think of this passage as well in, uh, in Luke. When my children were younger, we purchased a dog that we named uh, Shelly. Uh, the dog's original name, it was a purebred Sheltie. And a Sheltie is a Shetland sheepdog. They're bred uh, to go after sheep in the highlands of Scotland. And being Scottish myself, I figured what better dog to have. Either that or a Corgi, but I figured a Sheltie was better. And so we uh, got this dog. It, when a dog is a purebred, the, the um, breeders often name them some crazy name, and it was called Trish the Dish. I didn't like Trish the Dish, so we called it Shelly the Sheltie instead. And so that was her name, Shelly. Shelly, um, like I said, they're bred to, to uh, go after sheep and to herd sheep. And it was really interesting to watch uh, her as she would go out and play in the backyard with the kids. Very often, as the kids were running, and for whatever reason Shelly thought that they were in danger, she would often run alongside of them and just kind of nudge them over, you know, keep them away from, you know, sticks or stones or pokies or whatever. And uh, she would just um, round them up. And uh, she was very protective of them. And uh, any, any danger that sh- she perceived, she would kind of go after it. Really good dog. It was in the dog's DNA. And it loved to serve us that way. Whatever, we, we were completely comfortable with the kids out there playing with it. She actually bit somebody one time um, because she felt that the neighbor coming over was a threat to the kids. And um, that was all beside the point, but she, uh, was, she was a good dog. Supper, team, supper time came, and Krista would call the kids in for, for dinner. Come on, kids, come in for dinner. And uh, Shelly would just sit prim and proper, just, just like that. She would just wait patiently. And the kids would all eat. We would all eat. You know, if Shelly had opposing thumbs, she would have served us dinner too. You know, that was the only thing that prevented her from doing that. But she, uh, she loved just being out there and serving us in that way. And then when all of us had finished eating, she would get her dinner, and she was happy to wait patiently for it. I never stopped to thank Shelly for her service, for me that day or any other day. She was doing what she was made to do. It was in her nature to serve, and she did it willingly and gladly. Uh, She was delighted to do so. There's a lady who walks her dog at um, Lake Chabot in Castro Valley. And uh, oftentimes people go out there and they walk their dogs and people stop and say, hey, you know, pet the dog or whatever. Well, this lady, someone stopped to admire her dog and she began to praise the virtues of her pet. And she said this, this dog wants only two things. Really? What are they? He wants to know what I want him to do and he wants to do it. I thought that's good. That's really good. He wants to know what I want him to do, and he wants to do it. What a great spiritual lesson. That's just the way we should be with the Lord. We should have a passionate longing to discern his will in a single pure desire to do it. Um, Some years ago, Bill recounted a story of a time when he was invited to go to New Zealand, actually, and he stayed with a sheep breeder, and uh, he was with this, this uh, man who also would go out, and he, would, he was uh, invited oftentimes to teach on sheep breeding and, and raising sheep and all this kind of stuff. And he taught uh, about sheep. And he visited the agrodome um, in one of the cities that he went to, and it was a great display of sheep and wool and all this sort of thing. But he said, what fascinated them most was the skill of the collies as they worked with the sheep. Sometimes they crouched full length, you know, as they were kind of cowering at the, uh, um, the sheep. And they would give it a glare, and the sheep would run to wherever they would need to go. They just knew by looking at that dog that they'd better behave and go in the direction the dog was um, moving them. At other times, they would form a semicircle to the right or to the left, keeping the flock on course. And it only took a word or a whistle. From the shepherd to get these sheep, uh, these dogs, these uh, collies, to do uh, the shepherd's bidding. In the course of his lecture, the shepherd said, "This you don't have to reward these dogs. All they want is to be out on the hillsides, moving the sheep at my command. That's what they want." Bill said, "How true this is of the service for the Lord Jesus. The labor is its own reward." It's enough just to be out on the hillside with the good shepherd, seeking the sheep that are lost. It's enough to be found serving the very best of masters, spending and being spent for him. The fulfillment and satisfaction found in being his willing bond slave surpasses any reward. Think about your service for the Lord today. Are you like these dogs that we talked about? Dogs... The Lord left, us here, left them here for illustrations for us. And I think these are good illustrations of why he left them here. Obedient service. Are you like these dogs? Or has your service gone to the dogs? Here's the attitude we should have. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. September 1983, a very special month for me and for Krista. It was the month uh, and year that we were married. Uh, September 30th, it was a Friday night, and uh, we had uh, many plans. And the week before our wedding, all of the plans were coming together nicely for the, uh, for the big events on Friday night. Uh, I had come down from Canada. I had arranged an apartment for us to live in. Uh, that previous week, and on Sunday, I was back at the assembly here, and then I flew back up to Seattle to to marry Krista. It was an exciting week, a great week for us, as we prepared to finally be married. Little did I know that that same week, in fact, that same Sunday, Sunday afternoon our time, on the other side of the world, an event was taking place that would have prevented me from getting married. I had no idea about it until actually this week, and I thought, wow, that event could have stopped me from getting married, It would have stopped me from having children. In fact, most of you wouldn't be here if that event had taken place. It would have resulted in World War III in a nuclear holocaust such as the world has never seen before. There is a man whom you've probably never heard of before. Who, by his one action, averted catastrophe that would have wiped out entire countries and plunged the entire world into nuclear holocaust? It happened that same week, the Sunday before. It was, it was Monday morning, um, Russian time, and it was Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon, our time. How many of you have heard of Stanislav Petrov? Anybody know that name? You'll probably hear more about him next year. You've heard about him? Good. All right. Stanislav Petrov served as a lieutenant colonel in the USSR, 1983. At that time, Russia was considered an enemy of the United States of America. Many of you younger people won't remember any of this stuff because it's after your time, it was before your time. But Russia was considered the arch enemy of the United States of America. If we had any enemy in the world, it was Russia, the USSR. um, But as it turned out, Stanislav Petrov would become, for Russia and for the world, an unsung hero. Because of military secrecy and political and international differences, most of the world has not heard of this man, Stanislav Petrov. The extraordinary incident leading to his heroism occurred near Moscow in the former Soviet Union just past midnight, September 26. During um, this time, it was called the Cold War was going on. We've had World War I, you've heard about that, you've studied about it, World War II, massive weapons and killing and destruction, but then the world kind of settled into what was called the Cold War. It was just the amassing of stockpiles of nuclear weapons aimed at Russia from here and at Russia to the United States. And uh, that was kind of the way the Cold War went. It was kind of like, who's going to blink first? These two world powers did not trust each other. And the distrust... Uh, led to a dangerous consequence. They built thousands of nuclear weapons to be used against each other, and if there was ever a war that would uh, break out, um, it was likely they would devastate each other and much of the world many times over, resulting in the death of countless millions of people, hundreds of millions of people or more, uh, potentially even obliterating the whole planet. It was Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov's duty this particular night to uh, be in a control center. And uh, he was to use the computers and the satellites that they had in space to warn the Soviet leaders of uh, any nuclear missile attack by the United States. In the event of such an attack, the Soviet Union's strategy, it it was a known strategy, was that if they saw intercontinental ballistic missiles coming towards them, then they were just simply to press a button and send everything they had back at us. And uh, that was kind of the military strategy of the day. Tensions at this time were actually uh, very high. Um, Some of you may remember this, but uh, at the very beginning of that month, September 1983, there was a Korean jet that had veered off course over uh, Russian territory and the Soviet Union shot it down. It was a passenger jet and everybody on that plane died, including many Americans. When they realized what had happened and that it was not really a threat to Russia, uh, the Soviet government sent to their KGB operatives working in this country, look out, the United States is going to retaliate and they'll probably... Uh, start with nuclear weapons aimed against us. So they were already on alert. But there was more that was taking place that month. Uh, It happened that at the same time, the United States was was leading a a defense strategy in Europe, and they were playing war games with nuclear weapons uh, aimed at Russia. And that was right on their doorstep. And so all of this was taking place at the same time. And so their fears were at an, at an all-time high uh, that the United States was going to be sending nuclear um, bombs their way. So the, um, the military strategy or the kind of known agreement between the United States and, and Russia was the doctrine called MAD, M-A-D, which stood for Mutually Assured, destruction you send a bomb our way and we'll let loose with everything we've got and so you're dead and so this fear of who was going to blink first was always in the back of their minds the military and also the um, the political leaders of both countries really and they were so concerned about it that it kept each other at bay because nobody wanted to blink first on this particular night something went terribly terribly wrong Deep inside Serpukov, I'm not sure if I'm saying that, 15, a secret bunker somewhere in the, United, uh, the USSR, military officers were monitoring their early warning detection system. And their satellites reported to their computer system that an intercontinental uh, ballistic missile had been launched from the United States. And uh, they later learned that there was an anomaly that took place in the atmosphere that through some sun rays hitting uh, a cloud layer and bouncing back up into space, it actually was all it was. But they didn't know that at the time. And so the um, early warning system began to um, sound its alarm, the first sign of a massive nuclear strike. And really, this man, um, Stanislav Petrov, had written the rules of engagement. It was interesting. Uh, He had worked with the the systems, the satellite systems, the computer systems, and basically wrote the book on how to respond if there was ever a nuclear um, event. And so he, of all people, was there at the controls that night. The computer system was indicating an apparent launch of a single ICBM from the United States and was heading towards Russia. This is what he said. It was a nasty shock, he uh, recounted to the Moscow news. Everyone jumped from their seats looking at me. What could I do? There was an operations procedure that I had written myself. We did what we had to do. We checked the operation of all systems on 30 different levels. One after the other. Reports kept coming in. All is correct. The probability factor is two. What that means is uh, it's the highest probability the system uh, would allow, which meant it was near certainty that it really was a missile coming towards them. And um, Petrov could simply push the flashing button, initiating an irreversible a chain reaction in a system that would launch a counterattack without any human intervention. What should he do? Wow! Can you imagine being there and having that on your shoulders? Petrov, for just a moment, began to reason within his heart that a computer error must have occurred, because the United States surely would not launch a single ICBM if they were going to uh, be a first. If it was going to be a first strike they would launch a massive first strike, and there was only one. And so he began to think, no, it can't be. There's got to be a glitch in the system here. Besides, there had been questions about the accuracy of their whole system anyway, um, and so he was just concerned about all of this. But then, just a short time later, the situation turned even more serious. Now the computer system was indicating a second missile had been launched by the U.S., and was approaching the Soviet Union. Then a third, and a fourth, and a fifth. The sound of the alarms was deafening, and in front of Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, the word start was flashing in red. Start, start, start. Presumably, the instruction indicating the Soviet Union was under massive attack, and it was time to initiate the counterattack against the U.S. Even though he had this sense that the computer system might be wrong. He had this—he had no way of knowing for sure. And the problem was, the next line of defense was their um, um, radar system, which could not see beyond the horizon. And so if he waited until he actually saw this equipment coming to him on the horizon, it would be too late. There would be no way to uh, counterattack it at that point. And he waited. And he chose to do nothing. He um, made his final decision. He would trust his intuition and declare it a false alarm. If he were wrong, he realized that a massive counterstrike against the United States would be impossible. And it would soon be raining down nuclear weapons on the, on the Soviet Union. And he waited. And minutes passed by. And everything remained quiet. No missiles no destruction. His decision had been right. And really Stanislav Petrov had prevented a worldwide nuclear holocaust. He was a hero. Those in his own little group in the uh, the control room congratulated him for making the right decision. But he had disobeyed military procedure because he defied the computer warnings. And because of this, he later underwent intense questioning by his superiors about his actions. Um, And perhaps because he had ignored the warnings, he was no longer considered a reliable military officer. Presumably, in the military it is understood that orders and procedures are to be carried out unfailingly, without question. In the end, the Soviet Union did not reward his, this man, with any honor. Now, they didn't punish him either uh, uh, directly, um, but his promising military career was through. It was over. And he had to uh, retire, and then he had a nervous breakdown after that. He went on to live his life in Russia as a pensioner. But because of Stanislav Petrov's action that day in 1983, the earth was spared what probably would have been the most devastating war in our history. And yet for all of that Petrov, Stanislav Petrov does not consider himself a hero. It was really amazing to me to read his comments when he was interviewed by, uh, by uh, um, someone later. The person said something like this, you're undeniably one of the greatest heroes of all time. And Stanislav Petrov said, you know, it would ruin his, his health, his career, deprived him of peace of mind, and so on and so forth. He says this, it was my job. I was simply doing my job. And I was the right person at the right time, that's all. My late wife, uh, for 10 years, he had been married for 10 years, he says, even my late wife didn't know what I did. She knew nothing about it. We are called to service. We're not going to be like Stanislav Petrov, having that kind of control or that kind of power at our fingertips. But the Lord has called us to service, faithful service, to do what is right every time. And uh, when we finish our work, we need to be just like this guy. It was my job. I was just doing what I was supposed to do. We are unprofitable servants. We have only done what is our duty to do I thought about this guy and I thought, man, in a sense, he saved my marriage. (laughs) (laughs) And yours too. And your life. And your children. Most of the children wouldn't even be, I mean, you know, young adults wouldn't be here. I mean, it was like almost 30, it was 29 years ago that I got married. 29 years ago this happened. So everybody under 29 wouldn't even be here. Amazing. Amazing. And I thought about this, and I thought, you know, how do you thank somebody like this? How do you thank somebody like this? And so I posted the question online. If someone saved your life, how would you repay them? How would you repay them? You know the first two answers that had the most um, likes to them? The first answer was this, I'd be their slave. The second answer is, I would thank them. I thought, wow, how perfect that is for the sermon this week. (laughs) Really, that's what the first part of this passage is about. Think about what the Lord has done for us. He's done far more than Petrov did. The Lord went to the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. He saved not just our lives, He saved our souls from hell for eternity. What He did was a temporary thing that uh, saved the world from nuclear holocaust at that time. But the Lord has saved us for all eternity. If someone saved your soul, how would you repay them? Well, I think the first two answers are the best. The first one is, I'd be his slave. I'd be his bondservant. Lord, you saved me. You rescued me from certain destruction. Here I am. I offer you my body, my soul, my strength, my all. I'm your slave. And the second is I would thank him. He's done so much for us. How would we repay? Well, let's turn to the next part of the the passage here, verses 11 through 19. It happened as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priests. And so it was, as, he, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face and at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner?' And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Normally when this section is taught, uh, we, emphasize, uh, we, we tend to emphasize the similarities between leprosy and sin. We were like those lepers um, with no hope of cure. We were sinners through and through. We were outcasts uh, from God and without hope. But we heard about the master who could heal us and save our souls. And we said, Lord, have mercy on us. And he had mercy on our souls, and he saved us, everyone that uh, came to him. Crying out for mercy, we show that our only hope is in him, not in ourselves. And that's a very good application of this passage. But if we dig a little deeper here, it seems that there is only one of the ten who was actually saved, not all ten. Oh, all ten were healed. I have no doubt about that but I think there was really only one that was saved. Do you remember the story of the criminals who died on the cross next to Jesus, one on his left and one on his right? Initially, both of them hurled insults at the Lord while they were dying on the cross. Matthew 27 tells us that. But then something happened. I'm not sure when, I'm not sure how, but something happened in the heart of one of those robbers who was dying next to the Lord Jesus. And he had a change of heart. It was at that time he recognized who Jesus really is. And he stopped hurling insults. And he spoke up and rebuked the other robber. And he said this. Look, we deserve the punishment that we received. Why? Because we're robbers. We're crooks. We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus... Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Two people that can be that close to the Lord Jesus and only one recognizes who he is and trusts in him for salvation. Look around you in this room this morning. There are some sitting next to you today who will hear all the same things that you hear will read all the same portions of Scripture that you read and will walk away untouched, unmoved. And there are some who say, no, there's something different about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has to be God. Jesus Christ has to be our Savior. And they'll go out without ever trusting Him in the Lord, uh, trusting the Lord for their salvation. There were many people in Jesus' day who really liked Jesus. They really did. Why? Because he fed them. When they went out and followed him and they were hungry and he took a little boy's lunch and he fed them uh, fish and and bread, they liked Jesus. And he healed them. They were sick and they were deformed or they couldn't walk or they couldn't see or they had leprosy or they had something wrong with them. And, and, And Jesus healed them. I really like Jesus. And then Jesus made these demands like, I am your Lord. You are my servants. And they go, (laughs) no thanks. And they walked away. And he actually at one time turned to his disciples who were following him after the crowds had deserted him and he said, will you go also? And they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. (laughs) They ate, they drank, they were physically healed or released from demons and yet many who followed him were um, not saved. They were saved from their sickness But they weren't saved from their sins. Jesus tested the faith of these lepers. They came and they cried out. Lepers, as you know, had to stand a a, a long way. They were outcasts from society. They had to stand a long way from anybody else. And if they saw anybody approaching them, they would cover their their upper lip and they would call out. They would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. You know, don't come near me. I'm I'm contaminated. What a way to live, huh? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if, if we had to do that just because we were sinners? And we had to walk around society going, unclean, unclean. Don't come near me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Stay away. They saw Jesus. They had heard, no doubt, uh, of Jesus' healing. And they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. Heal us. And so the Lord tested their faith. And he says, go show yourself to to the priests. They weren't healed that moment. But as they walked... So now they're making a choice. They're now choosing to obey and listen to what he just told them to do. As they're, on, as they're on their way to show themselves to the priest, that's when they were healed. And as they're walking away, you can just see, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of leprosy, but it's horrible. It's, it's really uh, deforming, and it's, uh, it's horrible to look at. And can you imagine hands that were withered, crippled, feet, legs, face, and all of a sudden, you're seeing fresh flesh, skin that, that's normal. And I can just see this guy. And all of them, looking, look at us, look at us, we're healed. And one says, Yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> how was that possible? Leprosy can't be healed. We know that. We've lived in a society with people with leprosy, and they can't be healed. And yet, they were healed right there and then. And only one of them had enough sense to say, hey, this is impossible. The only way this is possible, if Jesus is God, Jesus spoke the word and now I am healed. And he came back, only one of them. He was a despised Samaritan, a double outcast, an outcast because of his sickness and an outcast because of his race. But just like the believing robber on the the cross, he began to think about who Jesus is. Who could heal leprosy by just speaking the word? Jesus was God. And it says he came to return and with a loud voice glorified who? God. Who is he glorifying? Jesus. Jesus is God. And he recognized him as such. And then, just like we saw in the story of the black dog and the brown dog, Mr. Loazzo said the brown dog knows nothing about worship. But the black dog did. And here's the black dog coming back from being healed and falling at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him because he is God and he had healed him. It's the only sane and reasonable thing he could do. And he worshiped at his feet and he expressed his thanksgiving to the Lord for what he had done. Now, while the other nine were quite satisfied with their temporary healing of their body, they were healed probably the rest of their life. I have no doubt about that. But when I say temporary... I mean, they're still going to die. They're still going to die. This man wasn't satisfied with just being temporarily healed. He was saved. And Jesus said to him, Your faith has made you well. I was thinking, just in closing, about a psalm that uh, we read about in, in Psalm 107. And it's a, a plaintive psalm in a way. The Lord is describing to uh, his people, Israel, uh, the things that he has done for them over the years, over the centuries. And then he, he asks four times in this psalm a question, or he's, uh, he, he makes a plea, really. He says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And he talks about all the things that he did for them in um, their wilderness wandering, when they were in Egypt when he delivered them from Egypt, when they were taken off into captivity um, to Babylon. And he says it again and again and again. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Brothers and sisters, if you know the Lord, think about the first verse, two verses of that psalm, which say this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord Say so. The two most popular answers about somebody who has done so much for us the first is, I'd be his slave. And the second is, I'd thank him. Let's do that today. Let's pray. Lord, as we think of what you've done for us, it just amazes us, Lord. We were worse off than these lepers, Uh, our condition was uh, terminal. And Lord, we uh, had no way of escape. But Lord, we think of what you did for us where you humbled yourself. You did not cling to your rights in heaven, but came and humbled yourself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross for us. What a servant that you might die in our place on that cruel cross. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. Lord, what fitting response can we offer to you but Lord I believe and Lord we offer to ourselves our our bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to you which is our spiritual worship Lord we want to be your servants and Lord we want the praise and thanksgiving of our heart to be heard in heaven thank you Lord for what you've done for us Lord give us hearts of gratitude hearts of praise and worship this week as we think over again and again The refreshing news that Christ died for sinners, of whom I am the chief. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.